The following message is from the 2019 IBCD pre-conference with Scott Mel. Essentials. All right, so, so far we have looked at the reality that the fact that life's a mess, right, that it is constantly and regularly messy. We've looked at how God has called each one of us, every single one of us, to be used by God in the midst of the mess, in caring for those who are in all sorts of different struggles or hurts. Um, we've learned that there's no script for how we are called to care for one another. And as we enter into this, this third session, we're going to kind of look at the first fundamental part of this definition that we've been talking about, that gospel care is the God-exalting, grace-saturated act of loving another person. And it's really here, it's in loving one another, it's in loving another person that's where we begin. Now, I, I'm afraid that this is the, the part that if it were up to you on your pace, you'd kind of just skip over, right? Because you're like, oh, of course, like I, I know I'm supposed to love people. Like the Bible says it a lot. People say it a lot. Like, of course, I'm supposed to love people. Um, you know, can't we just skip over it and get to the practical, what do I do? Can we just get to the practical, like, what do I say? Right, we, we, we want, you know, okay, if, that's fine. If you're not going to give me the, the, a script, then at least give me the, the practical skills to know what notes to play. But before we even get to the practical skills, we have to make sure that we're hearing the melody. We have to make sure that, we, that what we're doing is in line with the melody, that we even know how to um, identify it. I, I, I'm afraid that most of us think that loving, the fact that we're called to love one another goes without saying, right? Like, of course, you know, and so I'm going to minister to somebody. Of course, it goes without saying that we're supposed to love one another. This is right, like, like saying how you're supposed to relate to your kids. Like, it goes without saying that I love my kids. It goes without saying that I love my wife, that I'm supposed to love my wife, right? But too often, that's the problem, I think too, too often, especially when we're talking about what we're called to do and how we minister to one another, the problem is it does go without saying, and we miss it. We miss this most fundamental motive that is meant to shape everything else we're, we're called to do. And interestingly, while we assume that loving one another and the fact that we're called to love one another goes without saying, the, the New Testament doesn't share our assumption. The New Testament never assumes we know that we're supposed to love one another. It repeats over and over and over and over again this command, this call to love one another. In fact, I mean, by my just rough count, just kind of cruising through the, the, the New Testament, there are 54 explicit commands to love one another in the New Testament. That's not to mention all of the ones where it's essentially implied. Jesus called loving one another the second greatest commandment. It, it's the natural outflow of us genuinely loving God. Matthew 22, he, he, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul explicitly repeats the call to love 
in every single one of his letters. Romans 13, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment, he says, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The author of, the Hebrew, of Hebrews repeats it. Let brotherly love continue. James repeats it. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Peter repeated it. Of above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And John repeated it over and over, right? Just 10 times in 1 John alone. He says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Just because it was the message they'd heard from the beginning doesn't mean it goes without saying. Right, John didn't say, I know it's the message you heard from the beginning, I don't need to repeat it, everybody knows. No, he dedicated his entire letter to repeating it and exhorting over and over and over. You're called to love one another. And so, if you're wondering why in a, a training on how to care for one another in the midst of the mess. We're going to spend an entire session on the call to love. It's because I believe with all of my heart it reflects the emphasis we find all over the New Testament. And to not do so, I think, is to miss a huge, the, the, the huge foundational component of what we are called to do for one another as in the midst of the mess, right? In the midst of the mess of life, in the midst of the struggles, in the midst of the hurt, in the midst of the ways that all those around you um, feel pain and sadness and worry and consumed, God's call is for us to be a part of his beautiful rescue plan for their lives. To, to be a, a, a important and central part to the deliverance of his message and the hope that we have in Christ and through his spirit. And as we participate in God's rescue mission, both truth and love are necessary. We can't just stop and just teach me. And again, I think when we look for the practicals, when we look for the specifics, and we're gonna get to those, I, I promise. We're gonna talk about them. But we tend to just say, all I need is the truth. Just give me the truth, right? I've got the love part, just give me the truth. And I think that is a woefully uh, concerning, I'm not sure those two words go well together. But you understand what I mean, so we're good. But it's an incredibly concerning statement to assume I've got the love part down and what I need is the truth. I think it actually uh, demonstrates how, maybe how little of a, of importance and appreciation we put on the fundamental call for us to love one another. We need both love and truth. I, I imagine being on a, on a large Coast Guard ship that, that's been sent out to, to rescue someone who's drowning. And by this, I don't mean like a little dinghy, right, just kind of cruising. I mean like a large, like, you know, military Coast Guard ship. If you're sent out on a Coast Guard ship to save someone who's drowning. Love without truth is like coming upon the person who's drowning. And love without truth is like throwing them a rope without anything attached to it. 
right? There's no, 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 no life ring, no, no inflatable, no, nothing, that, there's just a rope. And so it's like throwing the rope without anything attached to it. And love without truth is like getting the rope. And you might grab the rope and you might be connected to the ship, but it hasn't provided you the one thing you need, which is something that floats, right? Have, have you ever, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been like on a, on a lake behind a, a boat, you know, being towed behind a boat, you know, you can maybe get up on a wakeboard, you can get up on skis. Have you ever been, tried to be like towed behind a boat without anything? This is what we did when we were like teenagers. I, I don't know why, but because, you know, it was just, we're like, oh, this is funny. You know what happens? You get drug underwater, <laughs> right? Like a rope without something that floats, without something to keep you up it, it, it is significantly less than what you Need. Not, not only that, but trying to get a rope out to someone without anything attached to it, it's probably not even going to make it there. Love without truth doesn't actually deliver what's most fundamentally needed. This is what happens when we're kind and we're polite or we're compassionate, but we don't actually bring truth, like we're going to talk about in the future sessions. But truth without love is like throwing the... the life ring out without a rope attached to it. Now, you, you might allow them to, to float. You might give them, in one sense, what they need, but they're not connected at all to the ship. They, they, they can't, they, they might be able to stay afloat for a little bit, but they, they can't actually be rescued because they're not connected in a real lasting way to the one thing they actually need. This is what happens when we, I think when we quote our favorite Bible verses at people regardless of the situation, right? When no matter, when, when anybody comes upon you with a mess and you're like, oh, you're in a mess? Don't worry. God uses all things for good of those who love him, right? Romans 8.28 says it, the Bible says it, you, you must need it, right? And we're gonna talk about Romans 8.28 because that is a deep and powerful and incredibly hope-giving truth. But it's not like the one-stop shop. It's not the one pill everybody needs in every situation. And sometimes it's not the right. Truth without love, without taking the time to consider what they need, isn't actually truthing them well, truthing in love at all. It also happens when we speak the truth, but we don't demonstrate the truth in our lives. When we say the words, but don't live it out in compassionate, sacrificial service. Right? When people are in the midst of a mess, they don't just need a, a counselor, they don't just need a mentor or a therapist or even a Christian friend. They need somebody who loves them. They need some, somebody who can not only speak the words of the love of God, but can show them the love of God because the love of God has so transformed them that they, they, they can manifest it in real ways. In their, they can be literally Jesus' hands and feet. This is what people in the midst of the mess in our world desperately need. They need us to be God's hand and feet. They need more than just answers thrown at them. They need love. Because our genuine love is designed to be this, over, uh, this overwhelming or this result of the overflow of his genuine love. 1 John Right? I said it's just about love and love and love. In 1 John 3, 16, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. This is what we're called to. Now, before we go any further, we have to stop and just 
I think we need to stop and ask the question, wait, what are we even talking about, right? What is love? Have you ever wondered this? Like, what is love? I mean, this is the question that's vexed poets and philosophers for as long as, you know, humans have existed. And, and actually, one, one time I was teaching on this topic and a, and a really kind older gentleman came up and he, he was appreciative of the teaching. He said, he said you know, I'm, I'm taking notes. He says, but I've just got one, there's just one question that I, I couldn't quite figure out. He goes, what exactly is love? You know, I, I panicked. I was like, oh no. Like, I just spoke on this for an hour. And not only did I not teach him what love is, but now that he's asked me, I'm not sure I know. Right, it's, I mean, because not even, scripture doesn't even like give us a nice, neat definition, right? There's not this like, like, in a lot of ways, when we want to understand what love is, he doesn't just tell us, okay, here's the list of things that love is. He demonstrates it. He shows us what love is over and over again by how God relates to us and how he cares for us because of his love for us. Right, and, Later on in 1 John, in chapter 4, it says, in this is love. And this is like the closest thing we get in Scripture to a definition. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The, I think the the simplest way I think we can identify what God-centered love is, is that love is essentially Christ-likeness lived out towards others. Love is Christ-likeness lived out towards others. Love is Christ-likeness lived out in our actions towards others. Right, 1 John 3, 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in, not, not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love is Christ-likeness lived out in our emotions for others. Right, Romans 12, 15. We rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Right? As a result of his love, we see in Christ's personhood in, on the earth, he felt deeply. And to love others is to feel deeply with them as well, to rejoice with them as they rejoice, to weep with them as they weep, to feel broken with them when they're broken, to allow the mess to impact us. And love is Christ-likeness lived out in our thoughts towards others. You think about Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more, important, more significant than yourselves. The NASB translates it, regard one another as more important than yourself. Right? Think of one another as more important than yourself. This is what the Christ-like heart and Christ-like love looks like. This actually, this Philippians 2 is one of my favorite passages in, in all of Scripture. Um, it's captivated me for decades now. It's one that I come back to again and again and again. And part of the reason is because I feel like this is one of those passages, and actually one of those passages, all the Bible's like this, but it's 
One of, the, one of those passages that has stuck out powerfully in my life that I realize in a tangible way I could spend my entire life trying to understand the depth of this passage, trying to apply this passage and never exhaust it. And it's the place, actually, I get this simple definition of, of love from, that love is Christ-likeness lived out towards others. The, the whole passage, Philippians 2, actually, let me, um, let me turn there here. Philippians 2, starting with verse 3 through 8. It says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, right? Which is, and the more we manifest this type of mind and heart, he says, the more we're becoming more and more like Christ. He says, who existed in the form of God. Existed in the form of God, but did not count equality with God something to be clung to. But instead of clinging to it and refusing the humility, he chose to humble himself and become a man. Be, God, right, God was born. God was a developing child in his mother's womb. God was born, God was a helpless infant. God was a toddler. God was a teenager. God grew up and humbled himself, I mean, the, 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 the humility of an entire life on earth. But not only that, he humbled himself to the point of death. Not only humbled himself to the point of death, he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Naked, crucified. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I mean, do you see when we look at Philippians 2, there, there's no step down you can take that will ever be anywhere close to too much. Right? God's calling us to radical humility, to a radical consideration of, of others as more significant than ourselves. When we're called to love them, we're called to not just act like people are more important than you, to not just treat them as if they were more important than you, but to actually consider them, actually think of them as more important than you are. This is the call to love, and this is where gospel care is not just a call to like do some nice things for someone. It's the call to actually consider them more important than yourself and be willing to pour out your life in love for them. This is so much more than counseling. This is so much more than discipleship. This is so much more than mentorship. This is, this is ma the manifest uh, reality of being a Christ 
follower who is called to love like he loves in the midst of the mess. As John wrote, again, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And this kind of Christ-shaped love isn't just simply some pie-in-the-sky ideal for Christians. It's the foundation of what you and I are called to do, called to be as we care for one another in the midst of the mess. And even in line, if you still wonder, okay, but why is it so important that we talk about love? Right, if I still, if I haven't convinced you yet, Paul drives this point home explicitly in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Now, of, of course, 1 Corinthians 13 is a well-known love passage, right? It's, it's quoted um, at weddings all the time. It's, you know, on lots of Valentine's Day cards. It's on everything from shower curtains to mugs to, right, 1 Corinthians 13 is like everywhere because it's, like, because it's poetic and it's beautiful and it's about love and, and, it, and it kind of makes you, you feel good. And it, but it's particularly, I think, utilized in when we think about romantic settings. But the interesting thing about 1 Corinthians 13 is that the original context of it didn't, actually didn't have anything to do with romantic love. And not that, if, if you used it at your wedding, that's great. It's a great application of it. There's no, nothing wrong with that. Um, but in its original context, 1 Corinthians 13 falls right in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. I know, it's incredible, right? <laughs> That's deep. It's deep. But 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 are both about how we are called to use our spiritual gifts as members of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 are all about using our gifts and caring for, for one another and, and building one another up in the body of Christ. And so if 1 Corinthians 12 is about building one another up in the body of Christ, and 1 Corinthians 14 is about building one, and up, one another up in the body of Christ, guess what 1 Corinthians 13 was originally about. It was about how we build one another up in the body of Christ. And as we use our gifts in the body of Christ, as we, we, we care for one another, as we provide gospel care to one another, it's in this, right? I mean, it's in this, into this context that Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love? He says, I gain nothing. Gospel care 
is the God-exalting, grace-saturated act of loving one another. Loving another person through patiently knowing, sacrificially serving, truthfully speaking, consistently applying the gospel in order to help them become more like Jesus. And over the next few sessions, we are gonna look at different ways that we're called to know one another and come to know one another. We're gonna look at different ways that we're called to serve one another. We're gonna, we're gonna look at different ways that we're called to speak truth to one another. We're, we're gonna look at how we consistently apply the gospel into one another's lives. But before we get there, this is the point we cannot miss. You can listen to someone, sit with them, ask them countless questions, make them feel heard, but if you don't love them, it's nothing. You can sacrificially serve them, someone, bring them meals, invite them into your home, give them time, give them money, give away, give away all sorts of your possessions to someone. But if you don't love them, you gain nothing. You can even take someone to the exact right passage of Scripture time and time again. You can teach them solid theological truth. But if it's not out of love, it is not what God is calling you to do. There is a, not just a fundamental role of love here, there is a necessary role that love plays in our care for one another. Before we know what to do, before we know how to act, before we try to live it out, God wants to call us to check our hearts because God is after far more than us simply just doing the right things. He's after more than just providing gospel care and so others can get cared for kind of why, for whatever reason. God is after our why because he's not just interested in the other person becoming more like Jesus, he's interested in us becoming more like Jesus as we help others become more like Jesus. This point was brought home for me uh, a while ago when um, my wife was sick. So, I mean, she just got the flu, I mean, it was a stomach flu, nothing, you know, tragic, but also, you know, a pretty big problem for our family. Now, I mean, when, when anyone in our family, so we, we've, we've got four kids between seven and 13, and um, so when anyone in our family gets sick, it's, it's pretty inconvenient, right? It, it throws a wrench in everything. Um, but, but when my wife gets sick, like the wheels fall off, right? Like there's, there's inconvenience, and then there's just like, I, I don't, we don't even know what's going on. And, and the last time my, my wife got sick, I found myself doing everything I could to, like, care for her. I, like, made soup, got it to her. I told her, I, I insisted she stay in bed. I insisted, you, you stay there, don't get up, here's the soup. I brought her vitamins. I, like, loaded all the kids in the car and went and, like, got her a prescription, got back, got it to her as soon as I could, like, to, made sure the kids were quiet because I wanted her sickness to last as short as possible. And I knew that if I could do all these things, we could like really limit how, how did the impact of this as much as, as much as we could. 
And I realized about halfway through that I was doing all the right things, but I wasn't actually loving my wife. I, to be honest, I didn't actually really care about how she was feeling, about what was, I cared about the impact it had on the entire family. And the Lord showed me that this was, that was actually not what I was called to do. All the soup, all the errands, all the staying in bed and handling things, he's like, that's, no, that's not what I'm calling you to do. I mean, loving her might manifest in some of those similar act, actions, but he was after something deeper in my family and he's after something deeper in our family as the church. He doesn't want us just to do the right things for whatever reason. He wants us to know others and serve them and speak the truth to them and consistently apply the gospel because we actually love them. And because he wants to pour out his love for them through us. So when it comes to this genuine, authentic love that God's calling us to, there, there isn't any substitute. And we have to start there. And so that'll wrap up our third session. But if you'll, uh, with me, hit the play next button on your, on your screens. We're gonna start getting into what this, um, what this actually does practically mean. Um, so. Loving someone begins with actually knowing them, right? We talked about, we've talked about this, or you, you've heard this uh, definition over and over. Gospel care is the God-exalting, grace-saturated act of loving another person through, and it starts with, patiently knowing. Um, through patiently knowing them. Before we can speak biblical truth, we have to take the time to actually get to know the person we're ministering to, caring for, or actually get to know the situation and the circumstance they're in. Right? Even here at, at the Institute for biblical counseling and discipleship, we have to start here. Because taking the time to know a person you're ministering to is just as important as taking time to know the scriptures that you're going to minister to them. It's not, it's not to say the scripture's not important. It is important, and we're gonna look at it. It's, it's of the utmost importance. But so is knowing the person you're seeking to love and knowing where they're at. Right? Applying scripture starts with studying it, right? You have to actually study it. You have to actually read it. You can't just download scripture into your brain. You can't just like, you know, lay it under your pillow at, at night and, you know, hope you just get some biosmosis. I, I can tell you it doesn't work. But it takes observing it and studying it, and interpreting it, asking questions of it, and meditating on it, and wrestling with it in order to understand it, right? You can't apply a, a, any particular passage unless you've taken the time to do so, right? You, you might, if you don't, you'll, you'll end up um, with a, a superficial um, 
relationship with God because you never took the time to really meditate on what it means to abide with Christ from John 15. Or maybe you'll end up only drinking wine whenever your stomach hurts, right? Because that's what Paul told Timothy to do. He said, take a little wine for your stomach, and you're like, you know what, I never wrestled with it, I never interpreted it, I heard it somewhere, so that's just what I do, you know? Pepto, no, that's unbiblical. <laughs> right? Like, like we, if we don't take the time to actually accurately understand it, we, we end up applying it in all sorts of weird ways. Right? Maybe, maybe you end up like getting rid of everything you own because someone told you the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. But you never looked it up. You never studied it for yourself. You never found out that actually the Bible says it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evils. Studying scripture and getting to know it is the only way we can truly come to know both God's word and know God himself. However, it's equally problematic when we don't take time to truly get to know the people we're ministering to as well. We, we, we apply truth equally um, problematically in ways that are just as silly if we don't take time to get to know the person, get to know what they're experiencing right then. Proverbs 18.15 tells us, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. God's calling us to be that intelligent heart, that, that, that wise ear that seeks to know. And this is why it's so helpful to be cared for by people who know you. This is why it's so helpful for the people in your life that have messes to be cared for by you. Our, our culture has a really weird preference of turning to people who don't know us at all when life gets messy. Right? In the, most, in the messiest moments of life, we, we tend to turn to people that we've never met, don't know at all, and like say, and will only talk to us if we give them money. And we're like, that person, that's exactly what I need. Right? And I'm not saying that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. There, there can be a place for that in people's lives, but... God provides, in the midst of our mess, God provides a fundamentally different model. Right? That the most effective people in ministering to others will always be people that have two characteristics. People who know their Bible and know you. The people who will be most effective in ministering to you in the midst of your mess will be people who know the Bible and know you. And in the same way, by you knowing Scripture and knowing the person, God has placed you uniquely in their life to be a blessing and to help them in whatever life's mess is. I, I, I tell this to people all the time who, who ask me, hey, will you meet with a friend of mine? And, and, and oftentimes I meet with all sorts of people in our church all the time, but when somebody says, when, when they first come and say, hey, I've got a friend who's like struggling, will you meet with them? My my first question is usually, how, how much time have you guys spent talking about it? And they're like, I don't know, I just found out about it. I got a text and I, asked, and I came to ask you. Right, but here's the thing, I might know a little bit more Bible than you do, but you know that person 
uh, a lot more than I do. And we need both. Right? We, we need to know both the Bible and the person. And, and so the knowledge of the person is a huge benefit and, and a huge need, needed place to start as we care for others. Of course, whether it's the word of God or the person we're, we're caring for, there's always more to learn, right? There's no one that you know exhaustively, right? We, we don't know our spouses or our kids or our parents exhaustively. And so we're going to look at just four different components of knowing and how, essentially how we come to know one another and care for one another well. First, we, we come to know one another, and this, you know, again, may seem obvious, but again, in basic fundamentals training, actually not just in basic fundamentals training, in all training, oftentimes we need to talk about the things that seem obvious that we oftentimes skip over. And another one of those is just listening. Just taking the time to listen. We, you can't, again, this might sound overly basic, but you can't know someone unless you take the time to stay quiet long enough to listen to them, to let them share with you what they're thinking, where they're at, what's going on. Uh, James tells us unequivocally, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Proverbs 18.13, right? If one gives an answer before he hears, it's his folly and his shame. Speaking, giving people your thoughts, giving people truth, giving people solutions, pointing people somewhere before you've taken time to listen, he says that's folly. That's shame. It's just fundamentally unwise. But it's hard, right? I mean, like, it's hard to listen. Well, it's hard to listen well. It's not hard to pretend like you're listening. I mean, we can do that. But it's hard to listen well. I think some of us, you know, you, I don't know, may have taken like an intro to psych course at one point or an intro to communications course and you learned like good listening skills. And so you're like, no, I know how to like act like I'm listening, right? I like, I lean forward. Okay, eye contact, appropriate responses, uh-huh, uh-huh. By the way, when I, whenever I sit with a friend, if I ever do that, they're like, what are you doing? Right, like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. So what you're saying to me is, right, like, I don't know, I don't know. I've never quite understood all that. But, so we, we, we can learn how to act like we're listening, but the question is, how do we actually listen well? I think much of the times when we're listening, we're, we're distracted, we, we're, we're waiting for our turn to speak. Maybe, I think, most often, we're distracted by trying to figure out what we're going to say. Right? Like, oh my gosh, they're talking. What should I say? What should I say? Is there a Bible verse? Is there, where is the Bible verse? Like, what, 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 right? And, and we miss half of what they're actually sharing. We, we live in a world where more and more people are talking and less and less people are listening which means we need to learn the discipline and we need to fight to pay attention to the words people are saying when they're speaking to us, to actually make sure we understand the words they're saying when they're speaking to us. If we don't know what they mean by a word, actually ask for clarification and help, ask them to help us understand what they're saying. 
and to, in that way, enter into the mess with them. Not just try to figure out what to do with the mess, but actually enter into it with them so that we can genuinely understand it. It begins with genuinely listening. Particularly for younger generations, listening is going to be a skill that you're going to have to develop because it doesn't come naturally and it is not promoted naturally in our world. And maybe, particularly for older generations, if you spent the last number of years doing most of your talking and listening on Facebook, right, we need to like get out of this throwing thoughts at one another world in which we live long enough to sit with a human and actually listen. This is what God's calling us to in love. As, as Erasmus observed centuries ago, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. In a land of no one listening, someone who will take the time to actually understand you will not only be able to speak wisely, but will have your ear because it feels like hardly anyone else does. This is what the Christ-like love God is calling us to um, pour into, pour into others. And learning to listen goes hand in hand with learning to ask good questions. Which you not only listen, but, but ask questions in order to learn more. I've tried for years and years to learn to ask better questions. I, I wasn't naturally a good question asker. Um, and the, the one thing I've learned about good questions is that good questions spring from genuine curiosity. Like the way you can come up with good questions is by actually wanting to know the answer. Right? And again this, again, this goes back to love. By caring about the person enough that you actually want to know about them. I mean, I, I did. I mean, I, I'll confess. I tried for years to become a good question asker. Like the, but then I realized years in, I was like, oh, wait. I, I'm just trying to become a good question asker. Right? Like, and, I, and I would look at the good question askers around me. I'm like, how do you think up those questions? I was like, oh, you actually want to know the answer. That's the difference, right? You're actually curious. You actually care enough about the people in front of you to want to know more about them. And the more we can, can seek to love those around us and actually understand them, actually understand where they're, not just write them off because they're different than us, not just write them off because that sounds weird or I wouldn't react that way or I've never thought that, but to understand why and how it doesn't require an emotional person to care for others this way. It just requires a human who cares enough to ask genuine questions. Now, of course, right, or, or, or Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Look at this. He doesn't say that an emotional man draws it out. He doesn't say that, a, that a, you know, a deeply in touch man draws it out. He says a man of understanding. That, that's something that we can all aspire to, right? Being a man or woman of understanding. And a man or woman of understanding draws out the heart and the purposes of it. So how, how do we ask good questions, right? How, how, how do we 
how do we strive to do that? I mean, I want to give you, I do want to give you some like just practical thoughts on how we develop good question asking. And, and again, some of you are like, okay, just give me a list of 50 questions I can memorize. Right? Like, don't you want, you, every, every turn we're like, well, we could get a script. This sounds great. This sounds great. Or we could get a script. Right? Like we, right? that's like what we want. Like you want like a list of questions. I, I get it. Because I want a list of questions. I do. But more than just a list of questions, I mean, let me just give you just some ideas, just some principles, some things to like, right? And one of them is, is ask, question, ask external questions and internal questions. Right? Like external, like what's going on? What, what's happening? What, what, how did you act? How did you respond? What did you say? Right? And, and ask internal questions. How did you feel? Right? What, what were you thinking? Not, and you got to be careful with the tone of that one. <laughs> right? Not, not, not uh, what were you thinking? More like, what were you thinking? No, you, can, you can figure it out. See, see how a script gets you in trouble? Yeah, yeah. Wrong tone and it's all gone. Um, right, what, what do you think you need, right? So ask external and ask internal questions. A ask general and specific questions, right? Ask general questions. How's work? What's new? What's going on? A ask specific questions. How are you feeling about your mom's diagnosis? What thoughts have you been having about your boss? Ask general and specific questions. So ask external and internal, general and specific. Ask current and historical questions, right? Current, how was your time with God this morning? Or ask historical, have you ever experienced this struggle before? Have you ever felt this way before? How often have you felt this way? When did your struggle, right? When did your struggle with pornography begin? Ask current and historical questions, right? Because the difference, right, yesterday is a fundamentally different situation than when I was 12, right? Ask, and asking them helps you to understand what's, what's needed. How do you uh, proceed? How can you love the person well? So ask external and internal, general and specific, current and historical. But if I can give you one one thing about asking questions, the biggest principle is just don't assume. Just don't assume. Don't, don't assume you know what people mean even by the words they say. Don't assume you know what someone means when they use the word depression. Don't assume you know what they mean when they say they're anxious. Don't assume you know what someone's feeling when they lost a job. Don't assume you know what someone's feeling when they're visiting their family this weekend. Don't assume you know what someone means when they say, you know what, my struggle with pornography is going well. Oh yeah, it's good. I'm only looking at it once a day. You and I have different definitions of good, right? Like, they, they, all of a sudden, like, anything and everything, it, we, we almost always need more information. And we get in trouble, we stop knowing when we assume. Which I think leads us to the, the third component of knowing others well. So we, we need to listen and ask good questions. And, and thirdly, we need to interpret what we're hearing in light of a biblical worldview. We, 
in order to care for people well, we can't just take the interpretations they give us and say, oh, okay, now I understand. Like, we need to take what they say and, and, and place it in a biblical worldview. Because if we're ever going to help others to think biblically, we have to start by thinking biblically ourselves. And people are going to hand you all sorts of interpretations for why they do what they do, how it happened, what's going on, all sorts of different interpretations for who they are and what that looks like. Right? They're going to they're gonna explain it with birth order dynamics. They say, oh, like, why does, oh, well, I'm a middle child or I was a firstborn or, you know, they're going to use their favorite personality test, right? Like, I'm an, I'm an INFJ or I'm a number three. Like, that's what's going on, right? I'm a man or a woman. I have ADD or ADHD. I have, we're going to use chemical imbalances. They're going to use all sorts of popular words. They're going to use the results of their Facebook quizzes. <laughs> like, there's... They're going to use, they're going to say, I just have a fear of commitment. They're going to use, you know, terms, broad terms that are serious terms that, but that, that exist, that, that mean all sorts of things in our culture, like depression or anxiety. And then the list could go on and on. They're going to use all sorts of terms to try to explain their experience, right? Because we, we want, we're trying to, to grasp onto that. And that's not bad. You don't have to correct them. But we do need to take what they're telling us and say, okay, wait, wait, how do I interpret what you're telling me? How do I interpret this experience in light of a biblical worldview? How do I think biblically about what you're sharing? And in our final two sessions, we're going to go into this even more in depth. But I just want to introduce two categories now that I think are, are, are helpful, even as we begin to interpret what we're hearing. And, and those two categories are that, that, that I think all of the things that contribute to the mess in our, messes in our lives kind of fall into two categories. There's, it's suffering in a fallen world and sin as a result of our fallen hearts. Right? As, as people share with you, we, we should be asking ourselves, in what way is this person suffering? From a fallen body, from a fallen environment, from a fallen culture, from fallen friends and family, and also asking, in what way is this person sinning? And not just like breaking rules, we're gonna, again, we're gonna talk about what this is later, but, but how, in what way are they manifesting self-focused behaviors or self-focused thoughts or self, even self-focused emotions, right? In who or, or what are they ultimately worshiping? And the more we can interpret what their experience in light of a biblical worldview, the more helpful the truth and the love that we speak is going to be. And like I said, we're going to come back to these categories shortly. But, but before we wrap up, there's one last, there's one fourth key to knowing um, that, we, that we can't neglect. That I think is actually, it's actually the linchpin to gospel care. And that's, fourthly, taking time to consider what's most needed in every particular moment. Here's what I mean. If, if I'm going to take time to know you, and I'm going to listen, and I'm going to ask good questions, and I'm going to interpret in light of Scripture, that, that doesn't yet answer, what should I say? <laughs> right? That doesn't yet answer, what should I do? That doesn't yet answer, what's the next step? And before we just jump into doing something, before we just jump into saying something, we need to pause and prayerfully consider the question, 
okay, in light of that, in light of in what I've heard, in light of what I've learned, in light of the questions, in light of interpreting what I've heard in a biblical worldview, what's most needed right now? What, what is most needed right now? You see, because as we consider all that we know from the word of God and all that we've learned from the person, the right truth at the wrong time is the wrong truth. I'm not saying it's untrue, right? This isn't like everybody has their own truth. It's still true, but it's not the right truth for them right then. It's not the truth they need to hear right then. Right, we talked about Romans 8.28, right? And we're gonna talk about it again, but someone may eventually need to hear that all things, actually, not may, everyone, everyone eventually needs to hear and know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But right in the moment after tragedy, it may not be the thing they need to be reminded of. They need something else. They need someone who will weep with them. They they need somebody who will just hold them. They they, they may need a whole host of different things. And the question that that leads us forward isn't what could I possibly say? Again, do you see what we do here? By asking, what could I possibly say? I need to say something. I, I need to get something out. You see, we've stopped loving them. We've made it about us. I need, to get, I need to remove this pressure to say a scripture verse. I need to remove this pressure to feel like I'm spiritual enough to, to, to justify my presence here in this moment. And we've made it about us, but when we make it about them, when we love them, when we consider them more significant than ourselves, then we will stop and consider, okay, what's most needed right now? So much of this wisdom just pours forth from Proverbs. We've been We've been in Proverbs all through this session. Proverbs 27, verse 14 says, Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, will be counted as a cursing. I love this proverb. It cracks me up. Right? I mean, this is like, I mean, just imagine the picture. I, you know, it sounds very kind of stated and official, you know, in kind of proverbsies. That's a thing. But... <laughs> But think about this, right? He says, whoever blesses his neighbor, right? You're like, oh, man, if my neighbor were to come by and say, Scott, you're such, it's such a blessing to be your neighbor. Like, you're just such a great guy. Like, I love your family. You're so helpful, and you're so polite, and it's so enjoyable to just get to live near you. That'd be such a blessing. I I would love that. But if it was 3 o'clock in the morning, and he was standing outside my window, you're like, Scott! I love being your neighbor. It's so great. Right? Like, I mean, first of all, I'd assume he's probably been drinking. <laughs> but, but it wouldn't be a blessing, right? It would, be, it, it would be accounted as a cursing. It would be frightening to my kids. Right? It would be disrupting to my sleep. Right? There's nothing good about same words, different time. Right? The right words at the wrong time are the wrong words. The right action at the wrong time is the wrong action. This is why Paul instructs the Thessalonians. In chapter five, he says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, 
encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. See, he knows that before he can either admonish or encourage or help, he has to determine whether the person he's speaking to is idle or faint-hearted or weak. Because he knows the idle shouldn't be helped. The faint-hearted shouldn't be admonished. He knows the weak need more than encouragement. Right? The idle need to be admonished. The faint-hearted need to be encouraged. The weak need to be helped. And so, in order to know how to proceed, we have to just take a minute, prayerfully stop and consider what's most needed at this particular moment. And again, it's scary. Like, I get it. It's scary. Because we're like, wait, I don't want to like have to consider in the moment what's most needed. Like, what? It re- but it requires biblical wisdom. James 1, I just love this promise. In James 1, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God and he will give it. There's not many promises like that in scripture. He says, if, if you lack this, just ask for it and he'll give it. But wisdom is one of those things. And so as we're listening, as we're asking questions, as we're, cons- as we're interpreting what we hear, whether it's in the moment or taking time outside of the moment, God's calling us to prayerfully say, Lord, Lord, I need wisdom. I need wisdom. I don't have it on my own. I need your wisdom. Will you help me know what's most needed right now? And then we're ready to speak. Then we're ready to act. Now, as I've been saying, we're, we're now halfway through this training. And like I said before, you, you may be like, okay, we still haven't talked about what I actually do. And for, but first, I, I wanted the pace of this training I think we, at ABCD, we wanted the pace of this training to be a bit of a corrective to the natural pace we usually take in the midst of people's messes. We tend to just jump in. We tend to just say something so we can say that we said something. We tend to just do something so that we just did something. But I am convinced that gospel-shaped care looks different. Gospel-shaped care is far more about our hearts, far more about why we're doing it, and far more about doing it well and wisely out of a deep knowledge of Scripture and a deep knowledge of the person. But having taken the time to, to love the other person patiently and listening, them, listening to them well, we will be prepared to lovingly act. And so after we come back, we'll, we'll dig into that. What, what are we then called to do? What are we called to say? And how do we show that love in a genuine um, and real way? Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.